COVID-19 has changed everything, halting life as we know it in its tracks. To respond to this global pandemic and to adapt to this new way of life, we're doing things a bit more DIY than usual. We're not in the studio and we're dispersed all over the country, but we did want to respond to the urgent need for information, bringing to you the voices of some of the leading experts to help us grapple with the new and not so new dimensions of this crisis. It's in this vein that we're calling the series Under the Black Light to uncover the conditions that pre-existed the virus and the cracks in our social structure that the virus can now exploit to wreak maximum havoc. In the coming weeks, we'll be producing live conversations that bring together artists, activists, thought leaders, scholars, service providers, and others on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Each Wednesday, we'll bring you a virtual conversation over Zoom, which will then be released as an episode of Intersectionality Matters in the following week. In this episode, we're diving deeper into an idea we began to examine last week, disaster white supremacy. Over the course of Under the Black Light, we've contextualized the current crises by looking to the past and understanding that our societal response to crises often serves as an opportunity for the reinforcement of pre-existing inequalities. It's no accident that Black, Brown, and Native people are being impacted by the disease at substantially higher rates, and that frontline workers, disproportionately people of color, are being told that they are essential and treat it as though they are expendable. This is history, rinsed and repeated. So let's dive in with Eduardo Bonilla Silva. We're in a vicious cycle here. At first, the virus was presented as this great leveler. The talk was that the virus is colorblind. It's all of us who are vulnerable. Then, after a lot of prodding, attention finally turned to the shocking rates of infection and disease among black and brown folks. And then again, as if on cue, an almost entirely predictable thing happened. What are you seeing now in terms of the images and the articulations about the why behind the disparities? So for the first time, white people are realizing that, wow, black people have different uh, morbidity than us, yeah? Now, the good thing is they're talking about it. The bad thing is that I think they end up naturalizing the difference. If you don't explain why is that there are differences in morbidity and mortality rates, you end up a la Jerome Adams, yeah? The black surgeon general saying, hey, you know, stop smoking, stop drinking, and do it, do it not for yourself, do it for your abuela and your big mama, yeah? So rather mm-hmm. than thinking about the structure that produces health disparity, we go back to the black people need to change their behavior, yeah? Black people may have some genetic cultural thing that forces them to be more sick than white folks, yeah? Dr. Fauci, that everybody heralding as the hero, go and check what he said. He defended when, when Jamish Alcindor chastised in the press conference, when Jerome Adams then tried to, you know, take the, some of the stuff he said back, Fauci immediately said, Jerome is doing an outstanding job. We, we, could, we could talk a while about that moment when uh, Dr. Fauci stepped up to the podium. I'll just say for me, um, it was this moment where someone who is so smart about the thing that they know about, which in this case, you know, is infectious diseases. But then when he, when he moves to talk about race and race discourse, you realize that sometimes people should just stay in their lane. I know I can't talk about infectious diseases and I don't try. And I think for some folks, it's pretty clear that they shouldn't try to get into a middle of a conversation about the racial messaging that informed Dr. Adams' finger wagging at black and brown communities. And I'm sure we could talk some more about where we've seen finger wagging like this before. But I, I think where I wanted to go um, is back to work that you've done earlier, Eduardo, with Takufu Zaburi. And you were talking about how the way social science frames race and race disparities 
in a way that places the analysis of difference inside the bodies of people or inside communities as the source of disparity. Do you see some of what you were both writing about in the context of sociology playing out in the way the disparities behind COVID are being visited upon black and brown communities? Absolutely. Uh, so they also put the stories where they show images of dilapidated neighborhoods, yeah? The alternative to that is explaining residential segregation and showing, uh, you know, images of redlining and bankers not giving loans. So the mm -hmm. alternative is providing a structural interpretation, but rather than that is a story of dilapidation, etc., which ends up saying, why? Those people live like that? So mm -hmm. that's why they get sick. And I went and checked, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they're, the occupations that we are overrepresented, yeah? Bus drivers, correctional officers. So they are the ones who are exposed, uh, have a higher risk of exposure to COVID-19 than the average worker, yeah? In the words of Tina Turner, you know, <laughs> we don't need another hero, yeah? What we need is to have workers getting decent pay, having enough of a welfare state, so they don't need to be in a position where they're forced to work the way they are, yeah? If the, the people that we call essential workers are now our heroes, heroes should be compensated, yeah? We think we may have this, this virus for the next two years. Hell is going to be working, you know, for like a seven, eight, nine, nine, $10 an hour. What happens when the heroes do not behave like heroes? Mm -hmm. What happens with the workers in Santa Monica, California, go and ask for masks, and they're told, well, these masks are good, I'm like, but I see, that the doctors in the hospital are using N95. Mm -hmm. So they do their protests and they are basically suspended. Right, right. I wanna turn to Kate now. So for me, looking recently at some of the photos that came from the news coverage this week associated with the reopen the economy protests, it's been really jarring. Looking at guns in state capitals, uh, Confederate flags flying in formerly Union states. There's clearly a race and a gendered dynamic in play here. What are you seeing in all of this? Yeah, thank you. And, and thank you, Kim, so much for convening this conversation, which I'm, I'm so grateful to be a part of. Um, look, I was really struck by the overwhelming whiteness and majority male demographics. Um, when we looked at the groups of protesters uh, who were converging in those ways with don't tread on me signs, toting guns, toting Confederate flags, MAGA hats, um, what we're seeing I think is you know an, an embodiment and a visually striking representation of the disparity between people who are unwilling to give up the small inconveniences, um, in many cases, luxuries, such as going to second homes, um, and being faced down by people on the front lines, healthcare workers who are, as we know, disproportionately women and disproportionately women of color, particularly in low wage um, healthcare positions who are the most vulnerable. Um, so I have just been struck by, by seeing the white and predominantly male bodies converging in the ways that you drew attention to and embodying a sense of entitlement that I think is really revealing in this moment of crisis where the most vulnerable people are black and brown bodies who are on the front lines. Mm -hmm. You know, um, last week we had uh, Jonathan Metzl on and he went as far as to say that the scale of the pandemic in the United States is a whiteness problem in that preserving whiteness, not the bodies themselves, but the symbolic and performative dimensions of it, was for some folks more important than saving their lives. So uh, I'm wondering, you know, his, his frame is called dying for whiteness. If we have sort of whiteness as an underlying framework, how does patriarchy intersect with that? Like what, what part of this is really more uh, accurately captured in terms of 
white male patriarchy or patriarchal white supremacy. It seems like race and gender are both playing an ideological role that's kind of slippery, hard for us to, to fully capture. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's right. I think what we have is, as you say, a kind of suicidal whiteness and a suicidal white male toxicity on display here in you know early reports from say Michigan Public Radio the bodies that are converging on the state capitol are seemingly uh, only white exclusively white or white passing people and the estimate was 98 uh, percent male now obviously that that varies across different protests somewhat but I think what we're seeing is the most privileged people when faced with having to deal with as I said um, you know, in most instances, what people are complaining about in these particular protests are giving up relatively minor freedoms. You know, it reminds me of the old chestnut that when you're privileged, equality feels like oppression. I think when you're just someone who has enjoyed every possible freedom to a fault, restrictions feel like fascism. They feel like violations of basic civil liberties. So we have these these people who are the most entitled and the most um, unaccustomed to dealing with restrictions, just embodying a sense of entitlement to their own opinions about what's medically advisable and not wearing masks, not practicing social distancing, exhibiting a sense of entitlement to um, endanger other more vulnerable people who will be disproportionately and non-accidentally people of color and, and women of color. Um, and you have this sense of entitlement too to take up space, to occupy public space, even to the mortal peril of everyone else. Um, and this is because you're asked to not buy potting soil or go to a second home or, or use a speedboat. Um, in Michigan. Yes, yes. Well, you know, you, you've helped us illuminate the, I guess, cynical ways that uh, mass death is, is being framed and mobilized around. And it's not as though the consequences aren't clear, which takes us, uh, Sandy, to how the debate around what it means to reopening the economy and its massive loss of life is itself another uh, space where protest against that is being disciplined. So calling out, as uh, Dr. Corbett did, who's a lead researcher at the National Institute of Health, calling this out as genocide was met with furious outrage for even using that word. So it seems as though doing it is less controversial than what the it is being called. I'm interested in what you think is at stake here in how this is framed. I think there's a tendency to treat the concept of genocide too narrowly. I think a lot of people view the term as referring exclusively to uh, immediate and rapid extermination of a community. But if we look at the United Nations Human Rights Commission definition of genocide, it's, it's more expansive than that. So, so the first criteria for genocide that they offer is killing members of any group. But the second is causing serious bodily or mentally harm to members of the group. The third is deliberately inflicting on the group conditions to bring about physical destruction in whole or in part. Uh, fourth, imposing measures to prevent births within the group. And fifth and finally, uh, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, if we think about the history of practices that have been conducted vis-a-vis -vis Black folks in the United States, there's a host of, of ways in which we can characterize those actions as, as genocidal. I'm thinking, first of all, of involuntary sterilizations that took place of Black women at a number of stages historically in the United States, uh, leading Fannie Lou Hamer to famously refer to this 
as uh, the Mississippi appendectomy. But we also have a history of eugenic sterilization, and eugenic sterilization frequently had a heavily racialized character. Uh, I think in particular, the disproportionate sterilizations of blacks, both in the state of North Carolina, as well as in the state of California. Furthermore, black folks have been used for medical experimentation under conditions of coercion, and certainly under conditions where there was not informed consent. I think in part about the exploitation of enslaved black women for the purposes of gynecological research in Alabama. I think about the most notorious case being the Tuskegee experiment that took place in the 20th century, but also in the 1990s in the 20th century, the fenfluramine experiments that were conducted on young black males. So there's a long history of using black people for purposes of medical experimentation and having black people bear the risk of the potential harms that could, could occur if the particular drug therapy is not, is not necessarily an effective one. So, so Sandy, I, I think there will be some who will, you know, not in, in some agreement that, you know, there are broader ways of thinking about genocide, allowing people to die, making decisions, knowing that people will die, making decisions that you might not make if the people are different. I, I'm interested in thinking about other ways that this survival of the fittest ideology actually shapes work that we do more close to home, right? It's not necessarily the folks in the Capitol waving rifles and, and demanding their right to get their hair cut, but instead places where these ideas actually circulate in our discipline. So I, I'm really curious if there are politer versions of survivalist rhetoric that play out, say, in classic economic theory. Yeah, so I'm not even sure if it's polite, <laughs> but I'm thinking in particular of, of the Malthusian theory, which suggests that uh, there's always going to be a tendency for population size to outstrip the carrying capacity of the earth. And so as a consequence, we always have to prune away a certain portion of our population, which raises the question about which segments of the population are the ones that should be subjected to pruning. And in similar fashion, I mean, a related kind of, uh, of concept is associated with the folks who are advocates of zero population growth, which would require reducing fertility across the planet. Uh, and then the question is, who is going to bear the burden of the reduced fertility? And there's never a tendency to say that this is a burden that should be borne equally by all communities across the planet. There's always a target population. And, and I would add in that context that uh, if we think about this notion of surplus population, it creates an idea that there are some groups that are legitimate objects for medical experimentation. And in the present moment, I think it's particularly important because we are going to have to test vaccines. So should those vaccines for the coronavirus be disproportionately tested on black subjects? Well, I certainly think that ethically, no. But uh, unfortunately, I'm afraid that that's something that might actually happen. Right. Thank you, um, Sandy. Um, so, David, our theme for this webinar and last week was disaster white supremacy, the ways that the virus can be weaponized to advance pre-existing racial projects. Last week, we talked about it in terms of Wisconsin as the site of one such project, voter suppression. You've also been drawing attention to this problem with a particularly revealing moment when our president stumbled into the acknowledgement of what the importance of this moment really is. So how did a pandemic cause such an awareness around the politics of vote suppression? It's true that uh, Trump himself uh, exposed the issue of voter suppression perhaps more directly than any Republican ever has. In fact, one of the most extinct things in American political life is a uh, Republican who will actually admit what they're doing. And in effect, Trump did without trying to. He said no Republican would ever be elected again if you went to mail-in vote. We're in the midst of an election. One of the most pivotal elections uh, we've ever had in modern history, and it does have everything to do with the fact of this ignorant, racist, 
man who occupies uh, the presidency, but even more broadly, of a Republican party that has become, let's face it, let's be honest, the white people's party. It has become a white supremacist party at its base. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep appealing to it. If it didn't work for them, they wouldn't keep appealing to it. Broader than that, though, and we can come back to voter suppression, I'd love to, but this is a seismic event. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that now. Uh, it's an event from which we will change, one way or another. It is an event from which we will be educated. How much we'll be educated remains to be seen. But one of the things one learns by studying the past is that sometimes events happen to people that nobody can predict, that nobody seemed prepared for. And then out of that event, somehow society becomes different. The world becomes different. Who predicted the end of the Cold War? Who predicted 9-11? Who predicted Pearl Harbor? This is one of those events from which we are going to have to rethink the very idea of government. What does government even exist for? What do governments owe people? What do people owe their governments? Eduardo said something inter very interesting, that discrimination kills. So does the idea of limited government. So does uh, individualism, American style. It can kill if it takes hold of government. Uh, so can the willful destruction of the social contract kill people, and it has. And so can the association of the idea of liberty with the possession of assault rifles. When assault rifles become the definition of liberty, then not only can the rifle kill, but this whole new idea of what's liberty and liberty for whom can also kill, especially when it replaces the idea of liberty as that which has to be shared in some kind of common good. This crisis is going to force us, it already is forcing us, into this kind of debate. Where it comes out, how it comes out, of course, remains to be seen. But this is a litmus test for how Americans view the very idea of what government is for. Yes. So, you know, you, you talked about the uses of history. When you, when you look at that Wisconsin line and, and, and recognize that on one side was the right to vote and the other side was possible death, what historical precedents uh, come to mind in which political participation and the risk of death actually completely changed a political system? Well, I'm tempted to say the Edmund Pettus Bridge, but you know, much, much more broadly. Uh, look, let's face it, uh, many Americans know this history now, but many don't. The right to vote was established after the Civil War through blood. It was established through the blood of a massive civil war. It was established then through the blood caused by the terrorism practiced in the South to try to wipe out black voting. And it's, it's very important to understand that that thing called the Ku Klux Klan and its many imitators existed really for political purposes. Their primary aim was to stop black voting, to stop black politics in the South. The effort to stop people, black, brown, on the edges of society, women, young people, sometimes immigrants from voting, has always been practiced by entrenched conservative interest. And there, I think you have an image up of uh, Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. This is in some ways the most egregious <laughs> practice of voter suppression in all of our history, although there are many others to compare it to. This was 1898, Wilmington, North Carolina. It was a white supremacy campaign conducted in part from a newspaper in Raleigh, North Carolina, edited by Josephus Davis, and conducted in Wilmington by a cadre of white politicians and business owners who decided they were going to wipe out black economic life and black voting and black political power in that city, that county, and then eventually the whole state of North Carolina. And they succeeded by the direct use of terror and intimidation. It's estimated that between 15 and 20 people were murdered in the immediate coup. It was a coup d'etat to take over the city. That's really what it was. Actually, it was a pogrom. It was an American-style pogrom. 
In the long run, some nearly 1,500 black folk left Wilmington forever. They just had to move away. Some of them first moved into swamps to try to survive. But, but its aims were, without question, explicitly to destroy political activity by African Americans. And it worked. It not only destroyed black political activity, they took over the whole state of North Carolina for the cause of white supremacy for about the next 60 years. And they are, they are the disasters that are not marked uh, in American history, Dis disasters of American democracy, disasters for um, communities that are pushed out of power, and they impact everyone. I think one of the things about bringing these histories forward is you know, to recognize that there is uh, the continuing fingerprints of white supremacy of the past, um, that set the, the stage, and then the way racial hierarchy shapes what interventions look like in the current moment, project these patterns far into the future. I want to turn now to, to Ibram. David launched us into the discussion of some of the historical iterations of disaster white supremacy. I'm wondering how responses to past disasters have set the stage for these continuing cycles. So have we seen this story play out before in other moments when public health issues uh, have occurred and the consequences of those have been dramatically distinct for Black people and for the society at large? So, I mean, too many times um, in our history, I, at the beginning of this month of, of April, there were only a handful of states who were reporting racial data. And so at the time, we did not know that Black people were, Black and Latinx people were disproportionately being infected and even killed by, by COVID-19. We had no way of knowing. And we, we, so we had no way of knowing the suffering that was going on you know, in hospitals, in majority Black counties like Dougherty County in Southwest Georgia, like Orleans, Parish, of course, where New Orleans is, and you know, counties all over the, the, the country. Um, and, and you know, a historical parallel to me is the, the great Mississippi flood of 1927, when the Mississippi River, and it's really its river system, over flooded both banks, broke levees all the way up the coast of middle America, and tens of thousands of square miles of land was, was flooded and hundreds of thousands of people were driven from their homes. And many of those people were, were driven into relief camps. And many of those people, actually one estimate suggests that 90% of those people were black. Um, and many of those people then, black people had to go to these relief camps. And because their homes had been flooded out, they were homeless. And they typically were forced in places like Greenwood, Mississippi, to, they were forced into basically cleaning up the area by armed overseers who, if they did not work hard enough for long enough, would, would, would whip them and beat them and even sometimes kill them as if they were enslaved. Simultaneously, Herbert Hoover, who was the Secretary of Commerce, was basically overseeing the relief effort from this great Mississippi flood of 1927, which was actually one of the worst natural disasters in American history. And he was able to suppress reports of racism in these relief camps. In the way states in the early part of this pandemic were able to suppress the existence of racial disparities by not releasing racial data. And so, he was able to suppress the reports in these, in these relief camps, which then allowed Americans who were not reading the black press to imagine that everything was going well. And so Americans started looking at Herbert Hoover as somebody who was presidential material. And he ran for president and won the presidency. And to make a long story, or I should say short story, uh, shorter, he then promptly led this country into the Great Depression. And we all know how much suffering happened across this land as a result of the Great Depression. And, and by the same token, we have a president today who is touting himself as doing a good job in, in the way 
you know, Herbert Hoover was in, in 1927, when of course all the facts were, were saying otherwise. And, and, and of course, you know, the, the cycle continues, right? Because as a consequence of the Great Depression, then, you know, there's a disaster relief effort that comes with the next president, but that excludes black and brown people so that for many decades afterwards, uh, inequalities are structured into the economy so that when the next set of disasters come in, um, black and brown people are located in places where they're least likely uh, to be spared and, and, and most likely to catch the brunt of it. The effort lately, of course, has been to try to historicize, pulling, pulling back the aperture so we can see why and how uh, these disparities are the product of structured forms of inequality, structural racism, if you will. Yet there's resistance to even talking about it that way. Uh, last week on NPR, I think it was Bill Casted who did just that. He said, you know, I'm a physician. I'm just looking at the science and labeled structural racism rhetoric. So I wonder what is the... Uh, the response to that, frankly, what, what is sort of the 101 of it that um, all our listeners can be prepared to talk about in response to those who say that's just rhetoric? Well, what's, what's fascinating is, of course, today we're acknowledging Earth Day. We're acknowledging our home. And what's striking is you have many climate activists who are talking about global warming and climate change. And you know what people say? That's just rhetoric. <laughs> you know what people say? That my belief that, that that natural disaster was worse than the last one is, is not the result of, of the climate. It's just as valid as the science. I am a scientist. Everyone can be a scientist. And simultaneously, of course, you have people like, like Cassidy who, who can imagine that there is no such thing as the scientific study of race and racism, that we're just out here talking. Um, when, in fact, when you have racial inequality and, and, and scientists and scholars who study this know this, when you have racial inequality, there's only really two causes of that racial inequality. There's only two causes as to why in, in state after state in this country, let's say Black people are dying at double the rate of their population percentage. Either there's something wrong with Black people, they're not social distancing, they're not taking the virus seriously. There's something wrong with them and their behavior. And as Eduardo said, it's already been proven that Black people are taking this virus more seriously than white people. So we know that not only is that a, a racist idea, it's also been proven to be false. And so if, if that is not the cause of these disparities, if, it, if, if the cause of, of Latinx people in, in New York City being, being far and away more likely to die over their population percentage. It's not because of there's something wrong with what they're doing. The only other explanation is racist policies. We could, of course, have a whole, <laughs> a whole discussion on this series of policies. I mean, you mentioned the, 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 the Great Depression and how, for instance, many people in this country received the New Deal and uh, some of us received the Old Deal. Some of us did, were not given access to these new loans, and we were shoved into these communities and redlined into these communities. And then you had this growing density of black poverty in particular communities. And, and we all know when you have a larger density of, of poor people in any community, one of the things that can really harm that community is a contagion. We, we also know that typically those communities, that's where we put our hazardous waste sites. We, we also know that in those communities, there are food deserts. They're, in those communities, there are trauma deserts. In those communities, they don't have access to, to high-quality health care. Or when they do go to the doctor, the, the doctors are more likely to view them as people who, who don't feel pain or more likely to give them inferior care. And, you know, we can go on and on with the reasons why Black people are being, and, and Latinx people and Native people and other people are being infected and and killed at higher rates. And it's not because there's something wrong with them. It's not because these people are not taking this seriously. And somehow, some way, people had to see people who are not black and brown marching all over this country, fighting against the stay-at-home orders to realize that it, it wasn't our fault that we were being infected and, and killed at higher rates. 
Yeah. So, so much to talk about, and, and this is where we get into the round table, sort of one minute or less responses to things, so let's see how it works. Um, so, Kate, let me come back to you. We have been talking about race, class, and, and gender dynamics. It's been um, pretty challenging to hold all these pieces together. So, you know, there is the question of how patterns of domesticity have sometimes been reified uh, in the aftermath of disaster. So think about what happened, you know, after World War II and, and women were, you know, in, in the workforce in a way they'd never been before. But then part of the cost of building back was the reification of traditional gender roles, um, the reification of Black women as being you know, the wives of, of white wives, right? Helping them get their uh, work done. When you think about the histories of where gender and patriarchy in particular become uh, rigidified in the aftermath of social disruption, what do you think might be a template for us to think that happened then, we should be on the lookout for it happening in this COVID world and in the post-COVID world? Thank you for that question. I, I have found myself thinking in the past few days about um, Susan Faludi's work on the way that traditionally patriarchal as well as white supremacist masculinity and femininity were reinscribed following 9-11 and ways in which that was not only obviously the, the basis for opportunistic racism, but also an opportunistic anti-feminist and I would add uh, anti-intersectional moment after 9-11. And I think we have to similarly be on the lookout here for ways in which um, not only are women being exploited by the traditionally patriarchal gendered division of labor within households, uh, within heterosexual households where women are doing roughly twice the amount of domestic and childcare work as their male counterparts. I think we also have to be on the lookout for uh, ways in which that doesn't just happen accidentally, but people actively look for opportunities to reinscribe the kind of masculinity and femininity that is a myth, but a myth that is never out of style. And on the theme of what to be cautious about, David, you had said that you know, people are using history for all sorts of ways to navigate this moment. What, what do you think, from a historical lens, we should best use history, history to help us do at this moment? Too often when we reach into the past to find analogies, to find grounding from history to help us in the present, which we have to do, we have nowhere else to go, Uh, We end up uh, fighting over uh, cunning and lies and who's right and who's wrong, and we should fight over that. But what we have to do about using the past is have some humility uh, to understand that things can happen to us that we don't see coming. Um, But I, and I think we shouldn't cherry pick too much about this part of the past makes us understand that. However, We have no choice but to find those huge seismic events in our past that people had to respond to out of necessity that forced them to see some kind of new society, some kind of new horizon, and then fight it out to see who does get to control that horizon. Think for a moment, everybody. The U.S. Congress just put out into our economy, or is about to, I don't know, what is it now, one or one and a half trillion dollars? Can anybody truly get their head over that? That, around that, that is power. That is phenomenal power. And we have to organize, fiercely organize, to try to control who has that power. I don't mean to say everything depends on the election. I don't mean to say everything just depends on the Democrats taking control of the Senate and, of course, Trump being defeated, but a hell of a lot does depend on that. And we cannot let anybody stay home in the fall election. And one last little point here. We're here to talk about structures. We really are. Structural problems 
that have just been so revealed by this virus. The racial disparities are structural problems. Well, in some ways, the most obvious structural problem this has revealed is the voter suppression issue. It's so transparent what one side in our uh, political life is do, trying to do to the other side. And if we can't stop this and find a way for universal voting, then we will not have a democracy. I want to go to, to Sandy on that note. Um, so many of the challenges that we're talking about are structural, which then leads to one set of arguments, which is because they're structural, it means that we don't really need to talk about race as much as we do. It's sort of the rising tide lifts all boats uh, kind of framework. And it's not a left-right thing. Uh, you, I, I think there's a certain resistance to talking about even this moment in terms of its racial contours with the assumption that it's telling us we all need, you know, healthcare. It's telling us we all need better wages. It's telling us we all need, you know, stronger uh, protections for workers. The frame is we can get at these problems through a colorblind lens that really focuses, frankly, on the class dimensions of inequality and risk. What do you think the history is telling us and this current moment is telling us about the need for a race and class or intersectional kind of frame? As you probably know, I, I am a ferocious advocate of a set of programs that we might call universal interventions that would be appropriate and would be of advantage, I think, to all Americans. And in fact, if we already had some of these policies in place, our capacity to cope with the current crisis would have been much greater. Uh, but the fact that we don't have them in place doesn't mean that we cannot put them in place, even in the midst of the crisis. So the first thing I'm thinking of is uh, universal Wi-Fi, which would uh, accomplish the aims of providing schooling access for all of our young people. It would allow more people to work remotely, and it would also allow us to vote remotely, which is something that I believe that the current president would not be very enthusiastic about. Uh, a second universal program would be a federal job guarantee, and a third would be a program of national health insurance. But I think that it's vital that the particular historical and current experience of Black American descendants of US slavery be given proper attention. And I think for proper attention to occur in that context, it will require a program of reparations. Um, reparations that target specifically the immense racial wealth gap that exists in the United States where Black Americans constitute approximately 13% of the nation's population, but possess about 3% or less of the nation's wealth, uh, which comes out on average to approximately a differential of $800,000 between the mean Black household and the, the mean white household. Uh, this is an enormous gap. I think it's the fundamental pre-existing condition that underlies the huge mortality disparities that we're observing from the coronavirus itself. And to close that, to eliminate that disparity would require a reparations program. So, so Ibram, on, on that note, let, let me come to you. Um, you w one of your latest books was How to Be an Anti-Racist. If you are writing a coda to that, which I bet you probably are right now, how would you revise uh, the instruction at this moment with such clarity around the difficulty of our want to be anti-racist allies to actually um, be able to address this moment with the, the focus that it calls for? I, I recently wrote an essay in The Atlantic basically arguing Black people are not to blame for our disproportionate rates of, of deaths as a result of COVID-19. And aside from Senator Cassidy, who we quoted, and a writer in the American Conservative, every other person, if I remember correctly, that I quoted in the article blaming Black people 
were Democrats. <laughs> and, and so these were people who classified themselves as liberals. These are people who classify or, or recognize um, the existence on some level of, of racism. But what they simultaneously do is when they see a group of young black kids congregating in a park, in their mind, black people nationwide are not social distancing. And because they consider themselves to be defenders of black people, because they consider themselves to be activists, because they consider themselves to be you know, down with the movement, of course, they're going to then shout from the rafters, black people, y'all need to take this you know, seriously because y'all aren't right now and I care about you and I care about your lives. When, in, when indeed they are not allowing black imperfection. You know, I talked in, in How to Be an Anti-Racist about the need for us to allow imperfection, for us to truly recognize that, that Black people are going to make mistakes as individuals. Latinx people, Asian, Native, white people, uh, all these groups are imperfect groups with imperfect individuals. But, but I think this specific pandemic, I think, would have allowed me to really sort of touch on that and really hit home. Because if you're Black, then chances are you know somebody in your family who's refusing to stay home. But chances are, if you're another race, you know somebody like that too. Despite all of that, Black people are still dying at twice their population percentage. And, and so it really, I think it really sort of clarifies that, yes, Black people are not perfect. Yes, Black people make mistakes, but all these racial groups are making mistakes, but we're still sitting in coffins right now. We're still sitting in hospitals right now at disproportionate rates. Why? And that why is not what's wrong with Black people. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I have to say when we were talking a little earlier in the, um, prior to this call, the chastising of, of Black people, the association uh, between you know, certain uh, disparate outcomes and behavioral, you know, choices is something that's not itself a Republican or Democrat, you know, preoccupations. We've had Democratic presidents do that thing on us, just as we've had Republicans. In, in some way, I thought uh, Surgeon, the Surgeon General might have thought he was going to get away <laughs> with it because it is not an unusual thing, right? We had a president who did kind of that you know, at, at various times. One, one final thing I wanted to hear from you, David, a lot of us like to quote Frederick Douglass. Um, and I think sometimes, especially reading uh, your work, we get it wrong. What can you bring forward from Frederick Douglass that is right and on time at this moment? I had a hunch you'd challenge me with that. Uh, well, I'll give you one. I'll give you one from the deepest, darkest heart of a crisis. Uh, it's still pre-1864 election. The war is not won. Douglas is out on the road, the mission of the war. But he opens it by saying that we are now in a salutary school, the school of affliction. And then he went on to say that out of affliction, nations like individuals can learn. Well, uh, we're in a salutary school now. And it's up to our whole society to figure out what we're going to learn from it. Real tragedy is not just the, the tragedy that has no exit. Real tragedy through time is that from which people are instructed, as Melville once said. How are we going to get instructed by this moment of affliction? And in 1864, that was affliction. Because it still wasn't clear that that war was going to end with the destruction of slavery. How are we going to be instructed by this moment? And that's that's a perfect thought for all of our panelists to end on. We like to lift up the kind of work that they think needs to be done, the kind of engagement that is being done. So with that theme of how are we going to be instructed, let me go uh, first to you, Kate. I do have some hope that we might learn just how vital the care of women, especially women of color is in this moment of crisis. Let me not be Pollyanna-ish. We're seeing 
essential workers treated as disposable. But I hope that there is at least an effort, um, just as you said, this has to be a politics of care. And I, I hope that from at least some quarters, there is an effort to systematically reimagine how valuable the work um, that's being done is and to compensate and support it adequately. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Sandy? Uh, I'd like to piggyback off of David's uh, comments in two ways. Uh, first, uh, earlier David talked about the fact that we have this sudden and abrupt $2.2 trillion injection of funds into the American economy. And I think what's really the important lesson to grasp from that is the fact that the United States government can finance almost anything it wants to finance at any price at any moment if there is the will to do so. And so uh, I think we should take this whole question of how will you pay for it off the table in terms of considering dramatic and transformative social policies. And then uh, the second thing is I'd like to share a Frederick Douglass quotation myself. Uh, and I hope I get this one correctly, David, <laughs> but here it is. The world has never seen any people turn loose to such destitution as were the four million slaves of the South. They were free without roofs to cover them or bread to eat or land to cultivate and as a consequence died in such numbers as to awaken the hope of their enemies that they would soon disappear. Uh, this comment is made as a consequence of the failure to provide the formerly enslaved with the 40-acre land grants that they were promised. Bravo. That was at a point when he was disgusted <laughs> with the direction of Reconstruction. Well done. Yeah. I, 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 like, I like him going straight up and, and talking to the president and all of them on uh, July 4th. Like, take it to him. But anyway, I, I, I digress. Ibram, what are you leaving us with? I'm hoping what people realize is the cost of not resisting, um, that we literally are one pandemic away from mass sort of death, from mass suffering. And if anything, what pandemics do is it shines a light on the mass death and mass suffering that's already happening. And, and so I'm always sort of trying to ensure that people think about not just what could happen to them if they do resist, which people are always thinking about, but people begin to think about what could happen to them if they don't resist. Yes, yes, brilliant. Thank you, thank you so much, Ibram. Eduardo? For the first, probably in the last 10 years, more than all the push that Bernie Sanders did, now we can have a legitimate conversation about universal healthcare, yeah? Capitalists are going back to the Gilded Age, yeah? The level of wealth and income inequalities back to the 1930s or so, yeah? So although mm -hmm. I think that those of us who can should be donating money, that framework doesn't allow us to think about why are people going hungry? What is the level mm -hmm. of food insecurity? The horrible situation has created space for us to talk about things that before fewer people would be willing to think about. So I want to thank Eduardo Bonilla-Silva, Kate Mann, Sandy Darity, David Blight, and Ibram Kendi for helping us think through this crisis. We invite you to join us over Zoom for the next episode of our series this Wednesday, April 29th at 8 p.m. We'll focus on COVID in confinement. More information and an RSVP link are available at our website, aapf.org. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. Additional support was provided by Emmett O'Malley, Michael Kramer, and Alana Kane. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. <laughs>